You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. What's the oldest federal law enforcement agency? Ooh. And you can use a lifeline for this one. I can give you some clues if you need some. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Who wants to be a millionaire style? Who will I call? <laughs> <laughs> Let me give you a clue. Time waits for no man unless the man is Chuck Norris. Ooh. Uh, well. Or Chuck Norris's tears cure cancer. Too bad he never cried. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. Well, I'm guessing it has to do with today's episode. The CIA? No. Oh. <laughs> what does Chuck Norris have to do with the CIA? Well, you know, if you've ever watched James Bond or any of those kind of spy movies, Born Ultimatum, Born Identity. He was a Texas Marshal in his show. It's the U.S. Marshal Services. It's, it was formed in September 24th in 1789. It's the oldest law enforcement agency in existence. A long time ago. My wife's favorite TV show when she was a kid was Walker, Texas Ranger. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Chuck Norris. Come on, man. Jeez. I really thought you'd have gotten that one. <laughs> Maybe my clue just didn't make sense. I tease. I kid. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Well, this is our first real show of 2021, right? Because we've done our last three episodes with some recaps yeah. of 2020, which is a lot of fun to do. And go back and listen to some of the earlier episodes that we put together. So welcome. Welcome to 2021. How is 2021 treating you? Do you want your money back yet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I've experienced the preview and I'd like to cancel my subscription. <laughs> Jeez. No, actually, it feels good to be back behind the mic. It was fun doing the recap episodes, but it's good to kind of get into this more in-depth stuff and reconnect. So yeah, I'm excited for 2021. Yeah. I think it's going to be a good year. It's going to be a better year. You know, we still have a lot of things going on in the world with the pandemic and everything else, but the first two weeks in the US was a little bit bumpy. A little bit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Tiny little bit. We barely survived, but survive we did. You know, something I was thinking about yesterday, we do a lot of content about obviously digital media because that's what we live and breathe every day. And the whole thing that happened with the Capitol, just watching this all unfold of how these people filmed themselves and published it across the web and Facebook and YouTube and Instagram. And it's worthwhile us doing an episode about just that at some point, because it's really funny. It's, and it's not funny in the sense of, it's not a funny topic, but yeah. They didn't think it through. I mean, case after case and the rest after the rest, the evidence that they have is just the stuff that they uploaded themselves. You know, typically you don't want to live stream yourself committing crimes. <laughs> yeah. This is very interesting. I would like to at some point get behind the psychology of what happened with these people and try to, in a weird way, tie that back to marketing because they're using marketing vehicles maybe. But this is, this is fascinating to me. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the whole viral nature of memes and how that plays into human behavior, it's absolutely relevant to yeah. marketing. I mean, it was very much some marketing gone awry, some political marketing gone awry. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's like the 10 cents beer night of politics. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. And if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it. It's good stuff, yeah. Mayhem. <laughs> but yes, now that you have let the cat out of the bag, we are talking about the CIA. The CIA wouldn't jump to the front of your mind as you think about brand comebacks or brand failures. But this is a really interesting rebranding exercise that they are currently undertaking. And I think there's a lot of things that we can talk about. And this is also one of those episodes that we can potentially fast forward in a year from now and then see how successful it's been and listen to our predictions and our thinking of why they made the decisions they made. Similar to, we actually need to do another Bloomberg episode. We do. Yes. (laughs) We have some learnings. Yeah, exactly. But let's dive in. This is a really interesting story. So art, as we know, it is everywhere, right? The usual suspects like schools and museums, but there are also murals and buildings and graffiti on the side of trains and chalk art on the sidewalks. And we both have little kids. I mean, Sidewalk chalk is like a a big deal, right? Yes. And I'm sure you've got some uh, crayon art hanging on your fridge or around your house. And it's it's just all around us. And there's also art in marketing. If you think of logos and commercials and billboards and even the font that we use in advertisements is ours. So to provide some context for today's rebranding exercise, this episode of the Marketing University podcast is going to start with a brief history Lesson. And specifically, we're going to go and take a moment and talk about typefaces. Mm. And this is a very interesting format, being audio, obviously. (laughs) But uh, I think we can really make it work. Let's see if we can paint the picture for our listeners. With words. Yes. (laughs) Are we effective communicators? We're about to find out. (laughs) (laughs) Thank goodness for show notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Let's not be too boastful and let's be realistic about what we can actually accomplish. So typefaces, as you just mentioned, they aren't just related to art and advertising. They actually have a long history with politics. And for me, I'm a little bit of a typeface geek yeah, because I think they communicate so much And have such a huge impact on design that we just don't even realize how impactful typefaces are in design. So, I mean, if you think of Fractor, Fractor is a Gothic font. It's also calligraphic, meaning that rather than just being Gothic, it has a handwritten quality that makes it somehow both curvy and pointy all at the same Mm -hmm. time. And I was never good at calligraphy. I mean, I had friends in high school and college and stuff that took calligraphy classes and they had amazing penmanship. That was never me, but I can appreciate the art form and very much admire it, especially being in advertising and design. So altogether, when you look at this Fractor typeface, and you can go into Google and search for Fractor typeface and see how this comes out. It's kind of a little bit difficult to look at. Yeah. It's a little difficult to read. It's not pleasant to the eyes, is it? No. And so, so much of typeface is that it communicates something. Yeah. And Fractor arose in the 16th century and remained popular until about the 18th century, at which point... Many European countries moved away from this in favor of the much easier to read Antiqua typeface. Mm-hmm. And like Time New Romans? Yes, exactly. Antiqua kind of like gave birth to Times New Roman. And of course, as you start to have like the 
more widespread distribution of print materials. It made a lot more sense to kind of get into a more standard typeface, something that was more legible, easy to read. But one country in particular held on to Fractor until the 20th century, and that was Germany. Mm-hmm. So Germany viewed Antiqua as a symbol of the classicist age and emerging cosmopolitanism in most of the European countries that had previously used Fractor, which was a more Gothic type of typeface. And being opposed to the classicist age and emerging cosmopolitanism, Germany held on to Fractor. They didn't embrace change with this. So saying it out loud and in hindsight, it's pretty clear that a font or a typeface, whichever term you prefer to use, couldn't have been the squeaky wheel that needed greasing. But who are we to question typographical drama from the 1700s? Yeah, so during the late 1700s and early 1800s, the typeface switch was debated so heavily in Germany that it was referred to as Antiqua Fractor Dispute. And the Antiqua Fracture dispute was such a big deal that two centuries later, it still today has its own regularly updated Wikipedia page. The Fracture typefaces remained in use in Nazi Germany and was represented as, quote, true German script, unquote. In fact, during World War II, German presses were urged to use the German script, meaning Fracture. And urged because the Fractor font was heavily associated with Nazi Germany. And this association was partly, if not largely, because of the Bauhaus. Mm. Tell us about the Bauhaus. Okay. The Bauhaus was a German art school founded by the German architect Walter Gropius after World War I in 1919. And Bauhaus was founded on principles of how design could be used to serve people and transform society. So the Bauhaus School led to the first concrete foundations of modern design. And additionally, its influence was not only limited to Germany, the revolutionary art movement not only helped to create what is now known as, of course, modern design, but really shaped cityscapes and entire urban centers throughout the world. At the same time, the aftermath of World War I in Germany also resulted in these emerging nationalist groups, groups that went on to coalesce as the Nazi party. And these groups called for a return to traditional German roots and values, including a reinvigorated love for, of all things, the Fractor typeface. It actually became this really big movement. Which is weird, right? Because it's so unpleasant to look at. <laughs> it belongs in a movie about vampires in Transylvania. Dracula, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So among the many creations of the Bauhaus, they were credited with establishing a new typeface called, actually, the Bauhaus. Hmm. And meanwhile, this nationalist movement that, of course, soon developed into... Nazi ideology, of course, nationalism tends to, if unchecked, become more and more extreme. And this Nazi ideology in Germany considered Bauhaus to be a rejection of traditional German values. 
So eventually, some even considered the artist's rejection to be treason. Yeah, it's interesting, right? So as time went on, thanks to the Bauhaus and the general need for more legible fonts, more and more simplified versions of the Fractor came into use in the early 1900s. And all of them more legible than the original font from the 1500s, but also unfortunately more modern and therefore controversial on the eyes of the Nazi party. And on January 3rd, 1941, interesting year, the Nazi party ended the controversy by declaring the Fractor font to be Judenlettern, which means the Jewish letters, before prohibiting it and switching to Antiqua. And German historian, and I'm going to butcher his last name, Albert Karp, has speculated that the regime viewed the hard-to-read Fractor as inhibiting communication in the occupied territories during World War II. And apparently war took precedence over having a German font. And thank you, that's been your art lesson from the Marketing Rescue Podcast. So, <laughs> I mean, that is such a crazy turnaround. It is bizarre. So why are we talking about art history as it relates to the CIA? Come tie it back for us, please. <laughs> And at some point, <laughs> we'll get to marketing. <laughs> <laughs> and stay away from politics. Oh, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is really funny, like, as we think about this, as we were planning for this episode, really just thinking that an entire country would really just hinder and limit itself to some degree because they wanted to have something so unique about them and thought that they had found that in a font and that changing that font was an assault on their very values and their identity as a country and as a people and their value as citizens within their nation. And today, when we see illegible, hard-to-read fonts in advertisements, that's considered a marketing fail, right? Like, right. that's a problem. There are rules that we follow in terms of things like legibility, contrast ratios. And the emotion that we're trying to provoke. Absolutely. Yeah. So by insisting on using Fractor for give or take uh, maybe about 400 years, as a metaphor, you could say Germany turned themselves into a bad billboard. I mean, they already had bad PR enough from World War II. A little bit of dirt, yeah. You know, I was just thinking, listening to you that that's definitely the country that comes up the most through all our episodes. If you think about it, Germany has popped up a few times as it relates to Fanta, as it relates to Coca-Cola. And it is interesting that it was a very influential country, it still is, for the size of what they are. A lot of stories and a lot of our tales go in and out of Germany. It's really interesting. It's a really good archetype for what tends to be a driver of significant and fundamental change within advertising yeah. is political strife. Yeah, 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 exactly. We see that time and time again. If you think about all of the advertising innovations that have happened in the past two years with the Black Lives Matter movement, with all of the current political strife and the changes in how we advertise COVID-19 and the effect that that's had on advertising and how we connect with people via advertisement, it really is foundational and fundamental to these large evolutionary changes in the advertising landscape. So I think whether you're a company or a country, 
I think the lesson is to really embrace art and the advancement of art and change within the artistic landscape within marketing because those things overlap and to have a really strong pulse on what the cultural, political, and socioeconomic challenges are of the day because they will absolutely have an impact on how advertising is perceived and how it moves forward. So we can just wrap up there and just say, go and look at the CIA's redesign in the show notes and that's it, right? (laughs) (laughs) Feels like a good spot for us to stop. (laughs) Or is there more? I think there might be a little bit more. Yeah. So, you know, if you think of graphic design and the CIA, they don't really mix. You don't think of graphic design as CIA's passion. It's not the thing that they are known to be or what they're striving to be for that matter. But something has happened with the CIA over the last specifically four years, and I'm really going to try to tiptoe and not get political here, but they've had a attack on their integrity and on their brand for whatever reason. Let's not get into the why, because then, then I think we will get into a political sphere. But regardless of that, they've had an attack on their identity and their brand, which has led to real-life consequences as it relates to recruiting, as it relates to, I think, a lot of their agents being in the field, they've had some issues that they've had to deal with. And I think that's part of the reason why they've gone down this route of doing a pretty significant rehaul of their website and of their brand. And if you've never been on a .gov website, there are two reasons for you to go there. So you'll know what I'm talking about when we say that most U.S. government agencies or websites have a very notable lack of effort put into them. They all look very the same and they're extremely ugly. They are functional, but they're definitely not like designed with user experience at the forefront. But they may not stay ugly for long. Not when the CA came out a few weeks ago as a trend-setting Kardashian of the official government websites. And if you go there, we'll leave a link in the show notes. It is very, very different from where they came from. So on January 8th, 2021, the Central Intelligence Agency unveiled a new design for its websites. It's ca.gov. And you think this is not a big deal, but apparently it is a really big deal. Or at least it was a big enough deal that the branding made the news. And you'd ask yourself, but why? And it's the same reason why Bauhaus did 100 years ago, simply for breaking the status quo. And that's how we're tying the CAA into the art lesson chat. Mm, You did it. You brought us full circle. (laughs) Good job. It's the same thing. It's the same thing that happened 100 years ago to get away from the fracture thing into Bauhaus that the CAA did. And I think that is super, super interesting. Yes. Exactly. The CIA.gov website abandoned the formal signifiers of government authority. You know, this dense kind of bureaucratic text. Most government websites look more like link directories than they do an actual website. They usually don't have much that's very fancy besides maybe a government seal of the branch of government that they belong to. And of course, you're usually 
playing off of the United States brand style guide, which is loosely red, white, and blue. And slap an eagle somewhere and they're ready to go. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's not a lot of creativity that happens. And for good reason, in a sense, in that it's taxpayer dollars and it's much more about substance than style. But very often, style is substance. But anyway. <laughs> that argument can be made. Especially as it relates to online content, right? And how we consume it. Yes. And not to be political, but these lack of style websites tend to be extremely expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Much more expensive than if the private sector was to develop a similar website. But CIA.gov, when you first go there, it looks almost like MySpace. The first time I went to it, it looks like a game. It looks like a EA operative game of some sort. You know what I mean? Like the CIA game. <laughs> I don't know. 007. Yeah. It's very different. Yeah. So you've got these really dark blacks and then this bright magenta color. And it's very stark because you really have those only two colors. It's black, white, magenta. Yeah. And these kind of like stark headshots. Futuristic headshots, right? You get a little bit of a hologram. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very high contrast, very stark in its presentation. You know, it's offset by these kind of dot and line design devices that form topographical contours. And the two main call to actions are the careers page and find your calling. So again, I really think that this is a recruitment exercise for them due to the last four years of battle that they had with their PR and their brand. Yeah. Well, and like we talk about so frequently, so much of marketing is actually culture at your organization. Right. It's the way that people actually experience working somewhere and being at an organization bleeds into everything else. And so I think you hit the nail on the head. And that's the only reason why you're doing this podcast with me, because you know that I released those emails from 10 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. In, in fact, the CIA is already involved. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the reactions. Let's first cover the negative. So online, people had noted that the website's virtual similarity to either electronic music festival flyer or streaming platforms like Boiler Room or marketing materials for brands like Urban Outfitters. And in an interview in the New York Times, Eric Hu, which is a freelance creative director who served previously as a design director at Nike Sportswear, said, quote, if I didn't read the copy, I wouldn't know if this was a direct-to-consumer designer toothbrush or an organization that's been accused of the destabilization of governments worldwide. And I think a quote is super powerful because that's exactly it. The brand design does not match our preconceived idea with what we think of as the brand. And I think that's what they're trying to change. And this is the first step of them doing that. So when you take a minute to think about it, something as weaponized as the CIA using the same marketing strategies as Urban Outfitters says a lot about marketing. It does. And as I think about the colors that are used, it's very, again, high contrast, a lot of blacks and whites, very bold. And it almost calls into my mind like black ops. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and all the shots, the headshots is very serious agents, right? Look at their faces. They're just very, they're in the game. <laughs> <laughs> For real. <laughs> yes. They've been plugged into the matrix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so a lot of questions were posed to the CIA and they declined to comment on who even created the website, you know, who was tasked with the design. However, shortly after it was revealed, the conceptual artist and graphic designer Ryder Rips claimed credit on an Instagram page that he uses as a digital portfolio. And he's never been seen since. <laughs> Good one. Good one. Rips is known for work with brands like Soylent and Pornhub and musicians including Kanye West, Pop Smoke, and Grimes. Hmm. So that being said... It doesn't seem that he actually designed the CIA's new website. Hmm. When the New York Times emailed Rips to ask why he falsely claimed to have designed the new site, Rips wrote back, quote, Platforms online are games played through the attention economy. Authorship and sincerity is murky as it is. People were already living a fantasy before I posted it, saying that I had made the CIA branding. Why not take their fantasy further and say I made it? I think Rip should stick to Pornhub. <laughs> that quote makes no sense to me. Authorship is murky. Hmm. He did have more to add to his response, though. Okay, okay, go, go ahead. Redeem yourself, Rip. Okay, well, we'll see. He says, quote, I think it's pretty bad. Mostly because it's looking from the inside to the outside of design. Referencing cool design of today, maybe actually a few years ago, all the while, the government and CIA already has a very strong federal design language. It probably could have used some tweaking for an update. So, I mean, it's interesting. He's trying to ride the web. If there was anybody that I would try to create a scam around, it probably wouldn't be the CIA. <laughs> no, I wouldn't put that on my portfolio. I put it down as a reference. Yeah. <laughs> He was trying to grab some white space, take a hold of it, and insert himself into it since nobody really knew who the actual designer was. Yeah. Well, anybody that says authorship is murky is full of <laughs> crap. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, he might be a successful artist, but not everybody agrees with him, to your point. Yeah. So there were also a lot of positive reactions, right? Yeah. Yeah, there were. For example, some comparisons that people made were the Skynet artificial intelligence uh, yeah. <laughs> design from the Terminator series and fictional corporations like Waylon Dutani from the Alien films. Mm. And who, in his New York Times interview, also said, quote, underground culture has been grabbing at militaristic, monolithic, dystopian signifiers for the latter half of the decade. Wow. Objectively, it's really funny that the CIA has used a visual language that used to be considered evil and dystopian, and that's since been kind of pacified. It just seems like this full circle, auroborous kind of thing where it's like club culture kids took an evil aesthetic and made it cool, end quote. And since today's theme is art history, a bonus fun fact is that the CIA is no stranger to the tactical use of aesthetics. During the Cold War, the agency reportedly funded avant-garde American painters like Jackson Pollock in order to draw a contrast to the stifling intellectual atmosphere 
of the Soviet Union. So propaganda has a very long artistic historical style. That would be a really interesting episode to look at inspiring propaganda and how it shaped us. Yeah. To where we are today. Because it's the propaganda machine and it's still very active in a lot of countries like North Korea and China and Russia. But that would be a very, very interesting episode to take a deep dive in. Nicole DeHay, a spokeswoman for the CIA, said, the CIA's mission is unlike any other and our website reflects it. With the CIA.gov's black and white color scheme, photography and graphics, we want to pique the interest of talented applications and provide a modern, reliable experience. And that's what we just said earlier, talented applications. I'm pretty sure that that's their main driving force for their rebrand. And you could argue that by taking a more artistic approach to marketing, the CIA is right on track because that's what art and marketing are both meant to do. Peak interest and provide reliable experiences. That's what we do every single day. So why would a brand like the CIA not do the same thing? Yeah. And that's the thing is I think they were definitely thinking about things the right way from a strategic objectives perspective. But I do think there is a very clear precedent in terms of the visual lexicon that we associate as just human beings, like we just talked about, with propaganda. And there's a reason for the phrase black hat yeah, tactics, black ops, all of those kinds of things that play into that. And so by fixing one perceptional problem, sometimes you can actually, unbeknownst to you, create another. And there are still people, including artists and marketers alike, who like rips and (laughs) like Germany during the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, view certain aspects of design like fonts as having very specific functions. So the Germans thought Fractor was superior when in all reality, It was just hard to read and a little overcomplicated. But Rips thinks there's a very strong federal design language that the CIA should adhere to when really most federal websites come off as harsh, difficult to navigate, and uninviting. So I think they did take a very important step forward in creating an image that's actually attractive, yeah, that actually is interesting and not boring. I mean, you could say that most websites that employ a very strong federal design language are absolutely examples of ineffective marketing. They're not relatable in any way. You can't see yourself in them and how it's making your life better. It's just cold and kind of disconnected and generally difficult to navigate and utilize. And you could point out that the CIA should stick to federal design simply because it is traditional is very similar to the Germans insisting the use of Fractor because that was what was considered traditional for the better part of four centuries. But you can also point out that by moving away from the traditional bureaucratic hallmarks of government web design, the CA is not only using some of the modern design principles established by the Bauhaus movement, but their actions mirror the Bauhaus rejection traditionally designed like the Fractor, or in the CIA's case, dense bureaucratic text, right? You just touched on something really important. You don't see yourself in the experience. You don't see yourself in the brand. 
And when you engage with any federal property right now, you can't associate yourself with the content you're consuming. And that might be at a choice, right? For all we know. But I can see myself, not that I want to become a CIA agent, but it evokes an emotion inside of me when I'm reading the copy and when I'm interacting with the design. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If you were the type of person that was seeking out or would be attracted to espionage, right? Like this would speak to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And another insightful comment who made to the New York Times about the CA's rebranding is that, quote, it's just a reminder that you shouldn't look at something and say, like, hey, that's a literal font and that is a conservative font. Everything has been deterritorialized. And I think that's also a great quote that we tend to look at things through a specific viewpoint. And that's not always the case. It changes over a period of time. If the CA rebranding proves anything, it's the fertility in trying to use graphic design as a marker of political ideology. And I think that in itself is really powerful. Hmm. That's interesting. We tend to come to any type of marketing collateral, an advertisement, an image, a typeface, whatever, with the lens of our personal experience. And my personal experience in my life is very different than yours, Nico. It's very, very different, right? We have- uh, Well, you're not white African-American, so obviously. (laughs) Right? And even my next door neighbor that I might grow up next to will still have a very different experience in their life. Yeah. Very different heritage, very different environment that they grow up in different belief systems, et cetera. So we have to be very careful with marketing to not attach our lens and make that a blanket statement of that this is how everybody will interpret or interact with this or perceive it because we don't know. You don't know, but you also are a subject matter that understand the principles of marketing and a lot of clients will pay you a fee to communicate their business problem using the principles that you understand. It's a give and take, it's a double-edged sword. It's expected to project our thinking and our opinion, but it's also expected not to do so. (laughs) (laughs) We've got to do it in the right ways. So it's taking that expertise of knowing that at the end of the day, it's the research, it's the insight that's going to actually drive those results and match the mood with the audience. Data talks and bad strategy walks, right? So it's just like, at the end of the day, if you're delivering on a campaign or on a brand promise and you can track it and you can see the results, you've been correct. You know, it's as simple as that. So what have you learned from this whole thing besides the art history that we just went through? Well, first of all, that art history is fascinating and <laughs> and I love it but I think sometimes we have to double check what we're doing we also shouldn't overthink what we're doing yeah and the landscape changes we just need to be very cognizant of the fact that change is constant it's always moving forward and so we just have to update our own marketing lexicon and our ability to guide clients through what may or may not be appropriate. 
based on the changes that we're undergoing and keep a really strong pulse on the cultural trends and themes that are taking place. But I do think that design is, it's like the core of everything that we do in marketing. It's just so central. Yeah, you're right. It is the core and it plays such a big role in how people interact with the brand. It's like the entry point. It's the window into the soul of the brand is the design. Yep. And if the window is colored or dirty or clean or shaped in a different way, it really influences the consumer interacting with the brand. And I think embracing change and connecting with our consumers goes hand in hand. Yeah. And embrace change in art or marketing or the intersection of the two. This is especially important, like the CIA, your aim is recruitment. So whether you're a country or company or a government agency, it's good to connect with your audience, right? And we know this, but we've seen in the show so many times people just get that horribly wrong. And when it comes to art and design, one of the best ways to connect with your audience is to embrace change. And this gets back to what we often come up, that transparency is something that a strong brand with a strong product should embrace. But transparency is something that scares a lot of brands that don't have a strong product or don't have a strong culture from an organizational standpoint. And this is because a connection can be easier to form when you establish a common language. And for a lot of people, that's art. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the way that we look at the world. And as marketers, you and I can embrace it, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of people that that are very, very anti-art. As soon as you start using the big M word about marketing, then it's the big, that's not art, but it is, right? It is definitely art. Yeah, and I do think one of the things that the CIA was trying to accomplish, as well as the recruiting piece, is potentially also really just setting the stage for how they want to be perceived by other countries. One of the big things that has been in the news is this big hack of the U.S. government. And when you look at the previous CIA logo versus the new CIA logo, yeah, one communicates, hey, we're all about cyber. We're like very advanced. We're with it. We're with the times, right? Like this is kind of a very cutting edge digital type of visual identity versus the old logo that, I mean... It looks old. <laughs> yeah. So there could be also a perceptional thing that they're putting out in general. And so I think you're right. It is absolutely about embracing that intersection between art and the changing needs of our target audience. So that's a fantastic spot for us to wrap. But before we do, I'm going to leave you with one of the famous Chuck Norris sayings. Chuck Norris does not sleep. He waits. Speak to you guys next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.